Well, good morning, Living Hope. I can't tell you how beautiful that is. We've missed children here, and I love the sound of kids. And, uh, you know, we're having baby dedication not only this service, but at the 1130 service, not only today, but next week. So we're dedicating 11 babies altogether. Our parents have been really busy this past year, and, and we're so uh, glad that we can do this. Hey, if today's your first day at Living Hope, or if you've just been coming out, I think today's a, a great day to start coming back to church because we're starting a new sermon series called The Exile. It's, we're going paragraph by paragraph through the book of 1 Peter. Um, and, uh, and we're going to last about nine Sundays. And I think that 1 Peter is such an appropriate book for this particular season. And the reason being is this. The audience that Peter writes to, the backdrop in which Peter is writing is to a group of people uh, who are experiencing suffering. In fact, uh, Peter mentions the word suffering uh, some 19 times throughout uh, the book of 1 Peter. It's a short book, but uh, it's such a dominant theme. And in the midst of suffering, the thread that Peter is trying to get at is that of hope. So he's writing to a group of people uh, who are desperate, who are trying to find some sort of hope in the midst of a very difficult situation. So the title of the series is called Exiles, but the tagline is Hope in a World That Is Not Our Home. Our passage for today is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. If you have not found your place there, 1 chapter 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at this in two parts, our identity and our blessings. The letter is from the Apostle Peter. If you have been going out to church for a while, you've heard his name. He is probably uh, the, the first among equals among the apostles, and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, is, he, he became the first leader of the early church, his personality is that of, uh, um, he is loud, rash, and it kind of rough around the edges. If you are into personality assessment, people would say that his Meyer-Briggs is uh, uh, ENFP. His Enneagram would be six. If that means anything to you, I have no idea what that means. Uh, but I'm glad, I'm, I'm guessing that some of you can relate. I do know that Peter loved the Lord Jesus. He's the one who proclaimed that he would never deny Jesus, and then he turns around and denies that he knew him three times, cussing along the way. But Jesus uh, really gently brings him back and reminds him that he loves him. Unlike uh, uh, Paul and Luke, who were also writers of many of the books of the New Testament, Peter was not an educated person. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, uh, we are told that both of them were uneducated, common people. If Paul was a, a, a nerd professor, Peter would be someone who would have enjoyed getting his hands dirty. If you would have met Peter, I, I believe we would have uh, shook his hand and felt that his hands were callous from all the fishing that he had done. And his skin was, was tanned, dried up because he'd been out in the sun 
so long. He writes, says Peter, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, are scattered throughout what is now known as Turkey. The term that he refers to uh, his audience is, uh, I, and I love this term, elect exiles. To those who are elect exiles. Christians, he said, are elect. Those, are, those who are chosen of God. It's a theological term, and it is a term that we don't quite understand. If God chooses us, through his foreknowledge, and, and so we, we somehow, uh, for some reason, God decides to say, I love you, and you will love me, and we don't, we're not sure how that works. Do we make a decision to love God, or does he choose us so that we would love God? It's a theological uh, term, uh, which means that we are not chosen because we are good, or, or more beautiful than others, but for some reason, God chooses. He elects, he selects a group of people to be his sons and daughters. By the choosing of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, uh, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says that uh, his audience, the people whom he is writing to, are not only chosen, but they are uh, exiles. The word literally in Greek means someone who is passing through but with a personal relationship with the people who are living in that locale. Other versions translate the term as strangers, aliens, foreigners, temporary residents, sojourners. He is writing to a group of people who are not citizens of the land and he is not saying that because they're simply scattered throughout Turkey. He's saying that they're exiles because they are Christians because they are chosen of God, living in a place that is not their home. You know, lately, and we've, we touched upon this a, a few weeks ago, uh, there had been a lot of talk in the news about anti-Asian sentiments or incidences. And some Asian American uh, people of prominence have spoken up about that. Uh, Jeremy Lin, the basketball player, said, we are tired of Asian American kids growing up and being asked where they're really from, of having our eyes mocked, of being objectified as exotic, or being told we're inherently unattractive. Chloe Kim, the gold medalist, said, um, really confess, I don't feel accepted in this country. An Asian American leader posted on, um, on her social media to counter the sentiments that she feels at times, we belong, you belong, I belong. This is our home as Asian Americans. And so there's this longing among Asian Americans to say, you know, although we look different, although we're treated differently, we belong here. This is our home. What is interesting is this. Peter writes to these uh, people dispersed about who probably desperately wanted to be belong. And he says to them, you don't belong. You're not citizens. You are, in fact, strangers and aliens. 
Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is a Christian? The Christian is someone who is a stranger to this world, but one who has been chosen of God. You know, Peter says that we need this particular tension, and let me explain why it is imperative that Christians need to understand that we live with this tension. You see, if we feel like we really did belong on this earth, we will ultimately be disappointed because at some point in time, as Christians, we will feel this strong rejection of who we are because of our faith. And if we don't feel like, though, we don't belong anywhere, then we will fall into despair. So in these two words that you are a chosen or elect exile, Peter reminds all Christians all over the place throughout history that we have this, this tension identity. We are at once, on the, on the one hand, strangers, foreigners in this earth, but at the same time, we've been chosen, elect, uh, loved by our Heavenly Father. That's our identity. Now let's go. That identity leads to uh, a threefold blessing. Uh, the whole uh, paragraph, verses 1 through 12, by the way, it's filled with deep, rich theology. And we can spend weeks and, 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 and really, if I want to do it justice, I would probably want to spend four weeks preaching through all of it, but I won't. But um, in verses 3 through 12, I'll, I'll break it up into three paragraphs. There are three things that Peter talks about as a result of uh, being a chosen exile. He talks about a hope that is alive, faith that is tested, and salvation that is by grace. First of all, as uh, Christians, our blessing is that we have a hope that is alive. Verses 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is our church verse. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That we not only have hope, but listen carefully, the modifier is important. We have a living hope. Like I said before, most of us, a lot of us live in this tension-filled space when we're filled with anxiety, uncertainty, suffering, and trials, and we're desperate to cling on to a measure of hope. Is there something I can believe in? The problem is that we oftentimes place our hope on things of this world, a, a job, an acceptance to our dream school, a miraculous medical recovery, the end of the global pandemic, a new election, or a future spouse or a baby. And all of those things may be good and, and blessed things, and when, if God 
grants that to us, we rejoice and we're grateful. But what happens? What happens if those things never come? What happens if the dream job just doesn't come? What happens to our hope? Or worst of all, what happens if you get that which you had always longed for? I've longed for a spouse or a child and, and we get there, we, we receive that and we realize that is not what brings me contentment and peace and joy. It is a great disappointment in fact. What Peter says is that what we really have is not hope that is anchored on something of this world that will disappoint, but hope that is living. Some, a hope that transcends, goes beyond the ultimate end, which is death, a living hope. And that living hope in verse, uh, verse 4 says, uh, it leaves us with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is what's different about a living hope. A few months ago, I don't know if you remember, but we as a church uh, prayed for one of our fellow pastors in Brea, a pastor by the name of Kelly Fellows. He um, uh, caught COVID, was on, in a coma for six weeks. We prayed for him a couple of times for healing, but you know what everything that we've been told is that if someone is in uh, has COVID and they're they're that sick for so long the chances of that person even um, coming out alive is very very slim a few months ago Kelly Fellows came on a Tuesday night to speak for us give his story at a prayer chapel and I remember talking to David Park, our, our elder who, who really knows the science behind it. And he says, boy, you know, what happened to him? He, it's remarkable. That's really unusual. I, we believe it's a miracle God healed him. And so we, we say, wow, that's great. That God fulfilled the hope that his wife and a lot of others had of healing in this life. But in January, we pray for another pastor friend of ours right down the street, Bob Reeve. He also caught COVID and we prayed for him as a church on a Sunday morning because he's a friend of ours. He came, on, came out of the hospital, but a few weeks later he went back and uh, took a, a really quick turn and he passed away. We prayed for healing for Bob also, but God did not answer that prayer. So where is our hope? If our hope is anchored on earthly healing, then for one person there was hope and the other person there is no hope? Is that what happens? What Peter says is that the reason we can have hope, it is not a dead hope, a stagnant hope, but a living hope. Hope that transcends this life into eternity through resurrection. One of the things that Bob used to say 
is that the best is yet to come. And he wasn't talking about, well, the best is yet to come. Well, next year our church will get bigger. Next year I'll have more grandkids. Well, next year I'll, I'll be healthier. The best is yet to come. He's ultimately pointing to that inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, that cannot be taken away. And I don't believe Bob would have said that um, his, his lack of healing in this earth means that, he, that the hope that was given to him, promised to him, did not come to him. But he would say, no, that same living hope that I had believed in had been fulfilled as he's living out that fulfillment. So as Christians, as we're desperately clinging on to hope, we have to realize we have this living hope. Secondly, verses 5 through 9 talks about a faith. He talks about it broadly, and then in verse 7, he talks about the genuineness of faith. That means that there is a faith that is genuine and a faith that is not Genuine. There is proven faith and counterfeit faith. There's real faith and fake faith. You know, a long time ago, someone gave me as a gift a um, tie pin. I don't know if you remember people wearing tie pins. They have a tie, and it's like a little piece of jewelry, like a little bar. Um, and I kept it for many, many years, but uh, unfortunately, I just didn't ever wear tie pins. So I had it for many, many years, probably like 10 years, and, and I thought, you know, I'm never going to wear this. I'm going to probably lose it. So to honor the person who gave me that gift, I'm going to sell it. <laughs> the, the box said it was gold, so I thought, well, you know, it's probably worth something. So I took to a jewelry store to sell this uh, tie pin. Um, they can melt it down and, you know, whatever. And I found out that day that gold-plated meant that it wasn't real gold. <laughs> that gold-plated meant that it was some other substance and they spray-painted gold on it. You know, the United States of America has been long known as a Judeo-Christian country, right? Meaning that the culture, the culture is like the spray paint that paints everything and makes it Christianized. So being American meant that I hold on to what I call a cultural Christianity and it makes people to think that the cover that they're wearing, the spray paint of Christianity makes uh, what's inside real, but it is really an inauthentic, fake brand of Christianity. And what is happening now, I don't know if you read, but the Gallup, Gallup poll just recently revealed for the first time since they've been doing this kind of survey that more Americans don't uh, belong to any religious institution than those who do. Does that make sense? That for the first time since Gallup has been doing this poll, more Americans are uh, without a religious affiliation. Not even, we're not even talking about the church, but a mosque or a synagogue even. 
that Americans, the majority for the first time, are uh, affiliation-wise irreligious. And this is surprising because in the year 20, uh, uh, 2000, that's just only 20 years ago, over 70% were affiliated. Cultural Christianity is becoming something of the past. And so for Americans, so if, if we live in America, uh, just 20 years ago, it was uh, politically, culturally advantageous to put on cultural Christianity is becoming less and less helpful. Verse 7 says that this genuine faith is not something you spray paint on or wear just on the outside, but it is one that produces praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That genuine faith, unlike fake faith, just naturally produces this desire to honor and praise and give glory to God. And verse 8, it describes faith as, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That genuine faith produces this affection for Jesus Christ, though we don't see him. And it, it produces this inexpressible joy and glory. Authentic faith, genuine faith, is not simply an intellectual agreement that Jesus was the Son of God, died and rose again. It is not simply uh, acts of obedience, uh, whether it be tithing or going to church or reading the scripture. It is not simply uh, an emotional experience during a song or a retreat. What does faith really look like? And how do we know? You know, sometimes, uh, it, like love, if someone had to just like put science behind love can you actually say this is love I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of songs in the same way I, I believe it's really difficult to define faith um, genuine faith from inauthentic faith but we have a gift here because Peter tells us uh, what genuine faith or, or how we can test whether we have genuine faith or not. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells the exiles... That, that when they face trials, when they grieve over trials, they can have joy because those trials have a purpose. Trials, listen carefully, is this. It's not the, uh, um, I'll tell you what trial isn't. It's when, um, when you do something stupid and you suffer the consequence of that, that's not a trial. That's just you being stupid, okay? Trial is when you're not doing anything stupid, but rather someone else did something stupid, or uh, the world is broken, and it hurts you deeply. 
it pains you. You suffer. You're, you're pained at what is happening to you. That's a trial. And Peter says that when you are experiencing trials, these pains, these sufferings, and it hurts, he's not saying, you know, just suck it up, be numb to it. No, he said you can grieve over it, but you can take joy because what it's doing is it's testing your faith. The analogy that he gives is that of gold, how when it is tested by fire. I don't know if you know this, but uh, when miners find gold in the ground, they don't find pure, uh, shiny gold color objects, but rather they find oftentimes gold in ores or rocks. So the gold is mixed in with other minerals. And so the miners would take these um, ores and um, they would uh, run it through a process called a refining process. In the refining process, they add other elements and they in, um, apply intense heat so that the ore is melted down. The pure gold is separated from impurities. Um, and yeah, they add other, other substance to it. And so when they remove the other substance, you, what you end up is pure gold. In the same way, trial does that to our faith. Oftentimes, we have cultural Christianity, cultural faith. Uh, it, our faith is mixed in with genuine faith and fake faith. And when we uh, encounter difficulties in our lives, when we encounter fires in our lives, it both reveals what kind of faith we have and it also refines the faith that we have. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you come to church for the first time in many, many, like, like I, I, I was talking to someone today, just this morning, this is the first time I've, we've been here for, for a year. So you come to church for the first time in a year with gr great expectation, thinking, wow, people are going to applaud for me um, and, and, you know, like, greet me. And, and then you, you go back home, you realize no one recognized me because I had the stupid mask on. Well, that was pretty anticlimactic. Or you come thinking that you, you'd be at least greeted and, and warmly met by a friend and only to walk away disappointed. You know what? That's a trial. You proclaim your faith in a very indirect way by sharing something on social media. Something that expresses your faith and a co-worker sees it and makes a comment, oh, you're one of those evangelicals, huh? And you start experiencing these little back talks. That's a trial. You try to hold on to integrity. Speak truth. 
but the people above you at work press you to compromise. And when you resist, you realize there's going to be a consequence. That's a trial. Um, you thought you were healthy and you thought you took good care of yourself and, and you go in for a routine checkup and the, the doctor sits you down and gives you a, a diagnosis and it, it, it's like you just got hit in the back of your head. That's a trial. When we encounter trials, it reveals what's really in us. Do we really believe in, have affection for, hold on to our Lord Jesus Christ? Or have we held on to a cultural faith? But Listen, when we encounter various trials, rejoice because it not only reveals our faith, but it is an opportunity for our faith to be refined, for it to be strengthened. So it is when we encounter trials and we, we respond with faith, that, that, that faith like a mustard seed, then it grows and it's, it gets strengthened. So rejoice in the midst of difficulties when we're trying to hold on to whatever slimmer of hope, when we encounter pain, rejoice that that is an opportunity for our faith to grow. The third and final uh, reason why we should rejoice is because of salvation. Verses 10 through 11 uh, and through 12 talks about our identity and how we can have salvation and how the prophets of old and uh, angels long to see this particular salvation and the reason why they long to see it is because the salvation was different and unique uh, from what they have known and it is um, a salvation not tied to works or sacrifice but there's a word here verse 10 concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours it is salvation that is by grace. It is not a salvation that is by works or sacrifice. It is not earned or deserved. It was given to us. You know, there are times, and I, I believe that living hope, a um, lot of us live our lives in a, in a world of meritocracy, meaning we believe that we get only what we work for, right? I mean, that's what our, our parents oftentimes taught us. We have to work hard. We, we need to work hard in order to, to earn. And if, if bad things happen to us, we generally believe, if things don't work out for us, we generally believe it's because I didn't work hard enough. We, we live in a world of meritocracy, work-oriented. And so when trials happen, when difficult things happen in our lives, we blame ourselves and we think, I just wasn't good enough. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't study hard enough. I should have been nicer. 
I want us to know that we are not only saved by grace, but we are sanctified and glorified by grace. That God maintains us even um, not only when we're good, but, not, but also when we are bad. God's love transcends not only during times when stupid things happen to us, but also during times when we ourselves are stupid. It is not salvation that you have earned, but it is the salvation that was given to you by grace. And so we're grateful for that. Listen, if you're here today, though, and you, you realize that, hey, that sounds great, but that, I, I don't know if that applies to me because I am not a Christian per se. I, I, I'm not sure if I have disqualified myself. I want you to know that even today, that offer is to you. If you were wondering if you have been chosen or elect, I want you to know that just by the virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit is starting to speak to you, that is the invitation. So even today, uh, I would invite you to have that conversation with God or have a conversation with someone else. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I come before you and I thank you for, the, for those who are elect and those who are not. I thank you for the trials that come our way, the pains. May your grace be upon us uh, as we continue uh, in our identity to count our blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.